This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Our guest today is Stevie Hopkins. And I took this right from your Twitter account, Stevie, because I thought it was great. You described yourself as a disruptive CEO plus Web3 builder who loves life and eats a lot of sushi. So I, I want to get that out of the way first and make sure our listeners are, are clear uh, on all that. First of all, I want to say congratulations to you for all of these different companies and all these amazing ideas that you've created. You're a founder of the merch company, SCP Merchandising, which is the largest independent merchandising company in the entertainment industry. You've helped build a lot of brands and some of the work with some of the biggest names, including Billie Eilish, Mitski, Carly Rae Jepsen, Louis the Child, Freddie Gibbs, and more. And now how we got connected is you're bringing both your unbridled enthusiasm for what's next and the best of your expertise as recognized by a master of merch to the Web3 realm, to Dropolis, which is quite literally the city of, the way it's described, your dreams. And so we're going to get into that today and uh, talk a little bit about your history. I'm fascinated by your bio and just reading about all the things that you've, you know, kind of dipped into in your career from a business perspective. Tell us your story, if you would, for people that don't know who you are and want to learn a little bit more about you off the bat before we jump in and talk about your projects. Other than dis- disruptive CEO and builder that enjoys eating a lot of sushi, right? Uh, 
other than that, you know, your your listeners can't see me right now. Um, and even if they could, they would not be able to tell. But I have a, a very severe permanent uh, physical disability. I've, I've had one my entire life. I was born with a neuromuscular disease. Um, one of the many, many muscular dystrophies. There's, I think there were 50 of them, right? Um, born with it. I've never walked. I've always used an electric wheelchair since I was two years old. And uh, that is a giant, giant factor in my career, how I got here, why I'm an entrepreneur, why disruption is important to me, right? Like that's a really, really important part of of my story that I've been telling for over a decade, but it's not until the past six months I've been telling it in the lens of the music and entertainment industry and and what I'm building, right? Um, But if you go back to when I was a kid, early as like fifth grade, sixth grade, you know, like all I can remember my hobbies being were video games and music, video games and music. And, you know, music was always the soundtrack of my life, whether whatever the emotions were in my life at the time or whatever I was exposed to. Um, my parents, you know, played Motown on every invitation, you know, as a very young child going up to northern Wisconsin and I knew every word to all the great Motown hits and the Beatles. And my dad's obsessed with Janis Joplin and she's the greatest entertainer alive, right? So I I was exposed to music at a really, really young age. And then, you know, in middle school uh, and high school, you know, while, while my peers were joining the football team or the basketball team or doing other extracurriculars that they were doing and yeah i would have loved to have done them but i physically am not able to right um to get involved in those things i started collecting cds and and going to concerts and using all my extra money to buy tickets and getting my mom to drop me off or my cousins to bring me so doing the concerts at a very very young age and getting exposed to that um it was like my outlet, like, you know, that was a big hobby, that and video games and store work. Um, and then um, I think also having a disability, another major, major factor for me is like finding those non-disability related things that I could identify with. So like right now, Andy, you're wearing a Duns and Roses shirt. That tells me a little something about you. It doesn't tell me everything about you, but it tells me something right and like I learned very early that when I wore band shirts that like people would say something and it would open conversations and I would and I would be friends that way you know and like being one of three people in the entire school who uses an electric wheelchair out of 3,000 people and lives their life differently I was always looking for like what are those common denominators that make me and you have things in common? How do we how do we socialize? And I I learned that like wearing banties and going to concerts and like my hobbies were social signalers as well as like part of my makeup. And on top of that, I've always been obsessed with collecting, right? Like collecting. Like arrowheads when I was like in the first grade, like looking in the woods with my friends and four-leaf clovers that we would find and and coins and 
baseball cards and Magic the Gathering. And, you know, I mentioned my CD collection. I um, had like two, three hundred disc changers that I would alphabetize and then have a Word document on my computer that I would keep straight perfectly so that any second I could push a button and play whatever album I wanted to play, right? I was obsessed. So, like, I was always a collector, right? Um, and that is really how my love for, like, pop culture and, like, the ancillary things around it started. And uh, entrepreneurship is very natural. My parents are both entrepreneurs. I don't think my dad or my well, – my dad had a job for a little bit. But I, not many people in my bloodlines have ever worked for anybody else. So the idea of working for somebody else, very foreign in my families. Um, and, you know, always inspired to do whatever. And I think having the disability, uh, it's also a little, honestly, it's a little easier if you're able to do it. Like back in the old days when there's no such thing as remote, like don't have to worry about accessibility or transportation. So um, I ended up starting a DIY record label. I was a concert promoter with my best friend. We did like 300 shows in six states every year. We were doing it all the wrong way. No insurance, cash everywhere. Oh, jeez. Yeah, you're, you're, you're making me sweat over here. Stop. Yeah, no kids. <laughs> you, you know what's up, Andy. Uh, we, were, we were doing the MySpace marketing. I was booking tours. I was like booking tours for my bands and my labels. I was arguing with promoters. Oh, yeah. That's the fun part, though. You're definitely hitting the sweet spot with us because you're talking about consumerism. You're talking about buying tickets. You're talking about seeing live music. You're talking about buying product and buying, you know, Hugh's been in the midst the last few years of, of doing these reissues of certain Rush releases. These box sets are like that thick, you know, um, and, and those are meant for people like you, right? And me and whatever. But Collectors. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we love everything yep. you're saying. No doubt about it. It was always a part of my life. And it's interesting. The older I got, uh, the physical nature of collecting uh, wasn't as appealing because I can't really use my hands anymore. So, you know, like touching the CDs or the magic cards or the baseball cards, like if you can't physically play with them, it's not as, I don't know, it's not as appealing. So, you know, I started collecting businesses instead, you know, and, and, <laughs> there you and, go. Yeah. And, and, and employees and assets and liabilities and all the other terrible things that business people have to deal with. Right. Um, but I, I started collecting those instead. Um, in 2009, January 20th, 2009, my sister, Annie, uh, she was my business partner on one of my many, many, many business ventures, um, 3E Love. It was my first quote-unquote successful business after many failed attempts throughout middle school, high school, and college. Um, but 3E Love, um, she started it. I just supported her. I was a co-founder. Um, we did it right after we graduated from the University of Illinois um, together in 06. Um, she passed away in 09 from a medical complication very unexpectedly. And at that time, it was right after the stock market crash, September 08. My parents' business, the financial industry, that was my day job. My night job was arguing with tour managers, right? Um, so day job, insurance and financial services. Night job, arguing with uh, 
you know, TMs and merch dies, right? And you passed away. And I'm like, man, life is really short. Like, I don't want to be selling 401ks. I don't want to be selling insurance to trucking companies. I don't want to be arguing with people over pizza buyouts at midnight at the Knights of Columbus. Like, I have, <laughs> I have, Can't I blame no, you there. <laughs> I, I have no interest in any of this, right? Like, I had no interest in anything that I was doing. Um, I had a record label. We had two decently successful bands, but you know, one of them break, broke up very unexpectedly after three years of a lot of hard work, and then the other one broke up, and then a band I managed, I got them a worldwide record deal, then they fired me without telling me, and they still owe me money, and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. So... When Annie passed away, I jumped in a van uh, with her friends of hers. I didn't even know them, really. They were my, my caregivers. I hardly knew them. Um, I brought another individual with a disability because I'd never traveled without a second wheelchair. So I looked through my phone. I'm like, who is wild enough to jump in a van in two weeks' notice for 30 days and hang out? And I found my friend Hugo. And we literally jumped in the van. I traveled for 30 days. For the first time in my life, lived life at like full speed. Um, and when I got back, it's like I got to do what anyone to do, just promote positivity, the message of acceptance. So 3D Love is a disability lifestyle brand that she created. Um, we're merchandising with like, again, going back to what I said earlier, you're wearing the Guns and Roses shirt. That tells me something about you. We're like wearing one of our shirts tells the world that the person wearing it either identifies as having a disability, maybe they're an ally to somebody, maybe they're a caregiver, a parent, a brother, a sister, a teacher, whatever. And it was starting all these amazing conversations. So I decided to quit music, quit insurance and finances, jump into that. They ended up exploding um, literally overnight, within months. Um, Within like three years, I had seven or eight full-time employees, uh, customers in like 40 countries, um, e-commerce, event merchandising, licensing. It, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I just like, just like when I started the music industry, I had no idea. For those that are listening, that the, the best way to explain that, if I'm right, is that the thing that people will recognize is the wheelchair heart symbol, correct? Yeah, so especially in the Midwest, because we started in Chicago, and that's all it was for three years until I took it full time. But yeah, we hold the international symbol of acceptance. Um, the wheelchair logo, the blue and the white logo that everyone knows, is called the international symbol of access. And so we flipped it, basically, changed the wheel to a, a half part, called it the international symbol of acceptance, my sister Annie, her life motto was, she's like, yeah, I'd love for every building to be accessible. But if it isn't, I'm not going to take it and stream. As long as I have somebody who loves me, they'll tear me up the stairs. That was legitimately like what her attitude was. Now, she wanted access. It's very important. But like acceptance is the beginning to people wanting to give access, right? Absolutely. Sure, it's, yes. It's it's amazing what you guys did. Cause I remember, long before us talking today, I remember seeing that the first time. Some of it has to do with the fact that the other symbol, I forget how you explained it technically, 
that one's just embedded in your mind because you see it, you know, on restrooms and parking spots or wherever else. Yep, everywhere. But I remember seeing the Hartwin for the first time. I don't remember where I was, but I remember it having that impact like in your brain. I don't even know how to explain it. Hearing you explain it, though, it makes 100% perfect sense. It's amazing how how open and welcoming what you created is versus the original. Yeah, and, and, and it was my sister's brainchild. I supported her with all the early merch procurement, website design, product funding, sponsorships, like doing to the disability pride parades and setting up a booth. So we were a tag team and we were, and we were both working other full-time jobs, right? Um, but that's how we started our first successful business. And unfortunately, you know, um, tragically, you know, her life got cut way, way shorter. Uh, and I had to jump in and I had to do it without her. It taught me a lot about myself and what I liked and what I didn't like. And um, did that for four, well, technically quite eight years semi-full-time, but four to five years very full-time. Um, uh, the story really turns the music to Den. I swore up and down I never worked in music to Den, ever. After Did you got I, stiffed by that last band, that was, yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm a transparent guy. I I, uh, I don't like the tension and the business first focus of a lot of the entertainment industry. It's not just music. Um, I have a, 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 a motto at my company. I like to remind everybody. I try to count relationships, not dollars, right? And... Um, I like to build relationships first, so I just, I don't know. I didn't like the late nights. I didn't like the arguing. I didn't like the the cutthroat competition, well, you know, like, I just didn't, I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't for me, so going into, like, really love, just talking about stories and people's lives and overcoming challenges, like, it was very emotionally rewarding, um, but in late 2013, well, 2012, it kind of started. Facebook changed their algorithm. I always like to joke around that I'm a marketing visionary, but I'm a terrible executioner. Uh, I need other people to do the execution of all my ridiculousness. <laughs> and the first three to four years of my entrepreneurship after Annie died, I had to do everything. And I was doing my best. But like, I wasn't good at it, at, at everything, right? Um and um, when Facebook changed their algorithm, it just smacked me upside down. Like the revenue, I mean, I was just having a hard time reaching people. And so I'm like, you know what? I got a print shop. I got a designer. I got my mom running an e-com store. She can run three more, right? Like I, I literally went back into my financial planner, right? A good portfolio needs diversification. I can't be 100% wheelchair hurt shirts, right? Like, that isn't sustainable. So I started reaching out to old friends. I got a print shop. I print your shirts. Blah, 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 blah. Wasn't even going after music. A friend of a friend of a friend reached out. I was like, hey, your friend so-and-so, he took a t-shirt order. He hurt his back. We have a concert in Northwest Indiana, Michigan, I think Cleveland. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where it's our first ever tour. We need these hundred shirts. I'm like, oh, I got you. And up until that point, guys, 
I don't know if we ever printed anything with more than one color, two colors, let alone a photo, a photo of like a legal IP we shouldn't even have been using, but like I don't know any better, right? Like, right? And like, like figuring out how to print those shirts for that band just because I'm a wild man and say yes to everything unless it might kill me, right? Like, that's my rule. I just said yes, and um, two days later, they showed up at my at my house at midnight. They were driving out in the middle of the night. They didn't want to, like, leave a day earlier. Um, showed up, picked up the shirts, never stopped texting me. They ended up getting signed to Rise Records under BMG. Then they got signed to Warp Tour. I was, like, their ad hoc manager for basically a few months. and never said, but... I was advising them on literally everything, like everything, right? Um, and then they hired a, a manager, and it was his first band. It was my first band for merchandising. He was like 22. Uh, and we just took each other under our wings and taught each other the game for the next year. Uh, they ended up being 10% of my revenue uh, within a year. Um, and then I'll never forget, it was late December 2014, the manager and the business manager were like, hey, if you're going to keep drawing with this band, we need to make sure you're ready to scale because we could go and sell their merch rights for a lot of money. And if they want to stay with you, they love you, they want to stay with you, are you ready? I'm like, I guess, of course I'm ready. <laughs> and January 6th, 2015, I'll never forget. Back to back to back to back to back to back. Six emails, the same subject. Intro. That manager and business management firm introduced me to five other managers for six up and coming bands that were touring with that band, around that band, on the same DIY label that the band used to be on, those managers ended up becoming or were, but either becoming or were, the managers of the likes of Brand New, The Starting Line, Under Oath, Billie Eilish, um, like, I don't even remember, Modern Baseball, um, Beach Slane, you know, and then, and then when you go beyond that, then it's like, okay, now we're connected to all of the Brooklyn, Long Island, Philly, I like to call it the emo revolution, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. That oh, happened, sure. right? And like and then the pop punk hardcore world that was starting to pop off ancillary. And then the, the indie bedroom pop that started to pop off ancillary to that. And then the one day I discovered Billie Eilish two months two years later and came to me and we know how that story went, and then <laughs> yeah. that got me into pop and hip hop and and streetwear, and uh, then it somehow got me to a button agent that at APA that had a friend who was doing a digital tour for a YouTuber, and they needed a hundred shirts for a convention in um, Chicago, and they wanted to rush over. I'm like, sure, why not? He sells out in like a minute, calls me. Can we get a thousand more in Minneapolis in two days? Whoa. I'm like, I don't know. I'll try. I pulled it off. 
Then that YouTuber went on tour, right? They ended up doing like 40 bucks a head. What musician does that? Like, none, right? Like, very, very few. And it was in like a thousand cap rooms. That got me into YouTube and digital. And now it's like, what? What happened? <laughs> man, that's exa- it's exhausting, but it's so inspiring to hear the story, man. That's great. That's the story of how I went from living in a van to almost 200 employees. <laughs> awesome. Wow. So 3E Love is Embrace, Educate, and Empower, correct? Yep. The idea is, is if you embrace who you are like, and your strengths and weaknesses and you embrace you know, those around you, you accept them. If you agitate the world around you on your needs and what you like and your your story, and if you empower others and empower yourself, then that is the formula to loving life. And that that's like sort of the message of acceptance. I love that. That's great. That's amazing, man. Congratulations. That's the story of how I I got here and uh, Brendan and my friends are oh, we're building the next thing. Wow. <laughs> That's a good segue for Dropolis. I got the email from from Brendan, and it was it was actually really interesting because the timing was very interesting because Hugh and I have been working together for several years on just different projects for his artwork and whatnot, and he's been doing the reissue stuff for Rush. We've been doing some gallery stuff even through COVID, and you know selling prints and doing all that kind of stuff that you would kind of anticipate and expect. Every once in a while, he and I will talk about NFTs. You know, it'll come up, we'll see an article, we'll share something, we'll say, oh, did you see what Roger Dean did with, you know, the guy that's done all the stuff for Yes? Or we'll see, hey, did you see what Slipknot did when they announced their tour? And then we'll talk about it and then it'll go away. So when I saw that, I was like, gosh, you know, this is just a topic that keeps coming up for us. And we keep talking about we need to do it, we need to do it, we need to do it. And we haven't done it yet. It's not because we haven't wanted to or because Hugh's not interested in it. We're 100% interested in it. Also, the word clueless comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> and clueless. But that's that's kind of a theme, right? That you're talking about when you're an entrepreneur and you're going through going through life and you're trying to figure out your next move. It's okay not to know the direction, right? Yeah, you're always clueless at some point, right? It's yeah. Okay. So my question to you is just, just to, to start talking about Dropless now is tell us about Dropless. And then I would love to, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot, Hugh. I'd love to use Hugh as a perfect example. It's like, why would somebody like Hugh, who has this long history of doing artwork and very well known, why would somebody like that want to get into that space? And why should they? Tell us about the future of it as well. I'll start with your second question, actually. Like, the value proposition and the importance of Web3, NFTs, blockchain for art and and just the world of music, right? Like... I think that's a very, very different question than what is Dropless, because Dropless only tackles one one hundredth of what I know is possible, right? Um, so, you know, you, you do, you've been doing art for, I'm assuming, most of your career, if not all of it, right? You're probably a born an artist, you love art, you've been drawing, writing, creating your whole life. It's who you are, you identify with it, right? And before... The internet. Let's even skip, forget NFTs, forget about blockchain. Right? Before the internet, your only way to expose the world to your art, your story, your creation, your name, was, you know, the other traditional forms of media or events. 
radio, TV, post. Actually not even sort of savvy about um, or concerned with promo. I did do some illustrations for Bauer Hockey Skate and things like that in Toronto when I was seven. And I realized that you are always going to be working for a master, whether that master is Aerosmith or Rush. You're not entirely a solo act, but by the same token, you get to work from home. You get to enjoy that. I was completely clueless about the fact that while I was doing covers and eventually doing covers for people like Aerosmith and Whitesnake, and I think about it at the time, but that a cover of mine enjoyed or at least perceived in Europe or Tokyo or Sao Paulo, I, I didn't care about that or much concerned myself with that until later I realized it was free advertising. It was kind of unsolicited editorial uh, presence in the marketplace, but it wasn't something that I, I pursued. But it became evident to me later that my own naivete was that indeed the world did get to see my work for free. Right. So like before the Internet, only way somebody would see your work would be if they went to a concert, bought an album, happened to watch MTV and it was featured. Right. If if they I mean, there was it was more limited. So the Internet just the internet, right? It Without you even having the intention of using the technology to promote your name or your art, it was doing it. Because Aerosmith and Rush was doing it for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and no matter what your intentions are, at the end of the day, that is a part of your story as an artist, right? And that, that's your work, right? And so the internet is spreading it. So for the, for the past 25 years, 30-ish, depending on what stage of the internet, right, you started using, right? But the past 30-ish years, this internet has been evolving, okay? Evolving, evolving, evolving. Getting more efficient, quicker reach, social media, TikTok, you know, everyone's had a phone in their hands. Whether you live in New York or Russia or Africa, Oh, like most of the world has smartphones at this point. Okay? Right, right. And so the internet has been the number one proponent of art without even us asking it to be. It just has. Right? And now, you know, look at the situations like, you know, Napster and Pirates Bay and, you know, early piracy. Okay, well, there was negativity to that. But at the end of the day, the internet was still pushing art in all forms out into the world for consumption, helping young kids like Stevie find what they're into. Right? Like, I'm an internet kid. Without the internet, what exposure would a, a young gentleman with a very severe disability, right? It was very, very challenging to get out and do things. I would have less exposure than someone else. And it's not just disability. It's, it's income, poverty, social circumstances, parental, right? So the Internet was this incredible, incredible revolution, in my opinion, of just giving people opportunity okay? and exposure to things, no matter what side of the coin you're on, right? And it happened. And we can't stop it, right? We can't stop it. Like, Laura's already might have wanted to try to stop it, 
but you can't stop it. <laughs> okay? And so then it evolved and it evolved and it evolved. Okay? The most important thing for, I think, the world to know about NFTs, forget about the letters NFTs. It's a very, very bad name currently. Okay? It's not a, a bad marketing proposition at this current state. And we can get into that if you guys want to talk about it. But forget about it. Let's talk about Web3. They call it Web3 because Web3 is the third evolutionary phase of the internet. What is the internet? The internet is computers talking to each other, sharing information. That's all it is, right? So Web3 is this third rev evolution of the internet. Web1 was you logs onto a website, username and password, right? And stores an art file, right? But that art file is just in a random database somewhere that somebody else owns. And they own it at the end of the day. You're a parasite. You're a guest, right? Oftentimes, you're paying to play, okay? Web 2 is this idea of us building our persona and our social identity on the internet and sharing it with the world, okay? And when that, when that happened, when that happened, it activated smartphones and how you can share video and photo and then, you know, then social media profiles evolved, right? And then now when you logged into a new website, you go to DoorDash, and we're about to do that in a little bit to order lunch. You go to DoorDash, and you say, sign in with Google, sign in with Facebook, sign in with Twitter, right? It's no longer a username and password if you don't want to be, and very few people use a username and password. You are using your social identity that you're generating on the Internet, okay? So now you live on the Internet. You did that. And frankly, you really don't have a choice if you want equal opportunity, equal exposure in a global social economic life, right? You have no choice. Web3. What is Web3? The biggest way I can explain it is that Facebook, they own your identity. You're putting your identity in the Facebook servers, right? And you're still going to log in to their computers, okay? The idea of Web3 is that in order to enter a world, you connect your wallet. What is in your wallet? Your wallet is on your browser, on your phone, in your watch, eventually in your clothing probably in a ledger that you put in the safety deposit box, okay? Whatever is that you put into the wallet, it's only in your wallet, okay? Now, when you connect your wallet into the internet via another person's website, you are giving them permission to read your wallet. That is the most important understanding that I always tell people when they tell me I'm clueless. What is this? What is this? So an NFT is a token in your wallet. 
you choose to buy it, claim it, receive it, right? And you put it into your wallet. That wallet is now your access to the World Wide Web. So whatever you put in your wallet is what you are allowing the world to identify you are into, you enjoy, you, you know, you like Rush. You collect Rush NFTs. You like Metallica, Slipknot, Lady Dada, whatever. Whatever you're into in music or movies or film or TV. We're nowhere near to the point where everything has an NFT. But I envision a world, whether you like it or not, this is some Black Mirror stuff. Your wedding certificate will be an NFT. Your college diploma will be an NFT. Your lease, your divorce paperwork after you get married, right? Legitimately, every single transaction that you as a human, be it art or finance or ownership of assets, will be identified by an NFT in a wallet, okay? That, that is where the internet is going. That is why companies like Ticketmaster and Live Nation are preceding the world with what are called PoApps, proof of attendance protocols. All they are is NFTs, tokens, contracts of computer code that represent that Hugh Sign was at a Rush concert on XYZ date. And with your permission, they are going to put it into your wallet. Okay? Then what's going to happen is when you connect that to social media profiles, websites, e-commerce stores, they'll give you benefits, they'll give you discounts, they'll give you early access, they'll give you, oh my God, you're only one of 10,000 people that were at the final show of Duns and Roses, we got an anniversary album, and we're going to give it to you for free, right? Because it's in your wallet. So that is what is happening right now, okay? Um, Starbucks just launched an NFC, basically, fan club. So it's like, yo, if you want to get your coffee cheaper and you want yours prepared faster, than everybody else, you need to have a token in your wallet, right? And you never pay for that token. So subscription, fan clubs, like membership programs, country clubs, everything will have NFTs, in my opinion, eventually. So if you ask me, why should Hugh Sign put his art in the NFTs? Well, if you want your art to live forever, you really might not have a choice. Paintings burn, right? They get thrown out. They get damaged. Now, all those things are still going to be out there. No one's going to stop painting. But there will be an NFT that will commemorate that you bought the painting, and then that you sold the painting, and then that you auctioned the painting. So, like, your wallet and all of our wallets will literally be the time capsules of human history. I, I truly believe that 500 years from now, that blockchain 
will be the time capsule of humankind. It's scary. It is kind of scary. Kind of scary and spooky too. But at the same time, none of what you said am I am I like in shock over you. At the end of the day, NFTs and crypto. They're not a dollar sign. It's not a, they're contracts of computer code stored on the internet. They only have dollar amounts because people have assigned them value. All values are arbitrary. I mean, yeah, true. Andy's shirt, Guns N' Roses, he might be just worth $1,000. I might only want to buy it for five bucks. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, all value and across the entire world is supply and demand, market and or arbitrary between buyer and seller. So, you know, people, NFTs have this very, very early, early association with dollars and the crypto markets, okay? But the actual purpose and use of NFTs have nothing to do with crypto value and or the market and or buying and selling and profiting necessarily. However, wherever there is somebody who wants something, and that's how we can buy rolled in the drop list, there is a value proposition. The immediate gratification of the internet and the nature of e-commerce is such that if you want it, whether it's Amazon or it's something a little bit more expensive or high-end like artwork or whatever, you can still respond to that pretty immediately and close the deal. I look at the Roger Dean example that Andy brought up earlier, and, and when someone like an art, like an artist like myself reading it, Roger did 276 drops, I guess they call them, uh, forgive my ignorance, and he assigned a value of $999, and they sold out in minutes. That sounds better than an evening at an art gallery, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's why it's, it's impossible for some people, like, even though you say the idea of a dollar sign being associated with NFT is now pretty fundamental compared to where you know NFTs are going, the way you describe it, NFTs are much more vast than that. Can't help but incorporate the intrigue, at least from my standpoint. Whether you love or hate Spotify and what they've done and the artist payouts, I mean, Spotify, Pandora, iTunes, like think about the exposure, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, all the platforms that they give the artists because of the, the easy access in the network. So if you're, again, if you only want to talk about NFTs from an art perspective, it's uh, another exposure platform. It's a, another exposure technology, but it's on hyperdrive because, like I said, it is a time capsule of our lives. I just look into somebody's wallet. It's all public on the blockchain. You choose whether you say, Wallet address, blah, 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 0x, right, is sign. That's your choice. Yeah, no one's forcing you to tell the world that's your wallet, right? But you do. And it's another way to engage in the world and the internet and fandom and hobbies and, and pop culture and your loved ones, you know? Like, I, I, I've given my friends gifts of NFCs I just thought were cute that they would like because of their hobbies or their favorite animal. And, you know, it cost me 30 bucks and it was a nice way to, like, get them into the technology and it's their first NFT. So, again, it's a way to engage with people. I mean, we all bought wallpapers for a phone for a dollar. 
You know, like... That's a good point, because it is so universal and global. It doesn't rely on the physical presence of people in an art gallery. Will you make as much money with that? Because it's just like streaming and all those things and iTunes. I mean, you, you, you're making point zero 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 one percent of... You can't sell music anymore unless you're way, way at the top. I mean, yeah, you're exposed, but what are you getting back from it? I always like to tell people that whether or not you believe in capitalism when you live in America or any other first world country, you're kind of stuck engaging in it, right? And the purpose of capitalism is to create the efficient market. So, you know, early, early 2021, when Kings of Leon and um, big EDM artists... Um, we're releasing albums and songs, you know, and no one ever heard of it. There's all this intrigue and there's all this secondary training, right? Those early, early, early adopters, whether you're talking musicians, brands, right? Uh, like Playboy had a really successful NFT that no one talks about. And they made millions of dollars. They were early, right? Uh, think about anything in time. The early people... Early, the early bird gets a worm, they say, right? So there are a bunch of early birds. They got their worms. It, it's not as been as profitable lately. But what I'm finding with music NFTs is like, it's still, if you want to talk music NFTs, and I have a whole three-hour debate on those because there's a lot of inefficiencies, a lot of misnomers, a lot of opportunity and problems. But where else... Can a musician track and own the data of the people that want to engage with them for their music without a lot of third-party intervention? And there really isn't, right? So, like, young and upcoming artists, even established ones, can release NFTs. They do it for free. They do it for $1,000. I mean, that's up to them. It's their capitalistic choice. To decide what barrier of entry and 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 what they value their music at, right? And so, but think of that NFT as like an engagement token to enter into like online clubs or to get into events. I'm talking to a friend right now about doing an AR uh, streetwear brand event in Chicago, where the only way you can get into one of the rooms is with a token on your phone, and then depending on what token you have, when you're in the room, you have a different experience. I mean, where else? Like, it's just, it's amazing. And, like, you can sell that and trade those tokens, and it's really, really, really cool and engaging. It's scary to me. <laughs> well, Especially a Luddite, I mean, as much as we rise to the occasion of learning programs like Pro Tools and Photoshop and the things that keep our lives intact, this level of knowledge that you're telling us about today, a little overwhelming, intimidating to me. Me too. <laughs> Honestly, it is for me too still. It's like every day there's new technology and companies with new offerings. Like, what in the world is that? How does that work? You know, it's like, it is very, very wild, wild west. I think it's a few years away from being everywhere, minimum a few years. Thank God for people like yourself who say, what the hell is that? You don't let that lie. You will find out what that is. 
It's, it is intimidating. Duopolis should be my last venture because it truly does combine all the things that I love. And so the idea is to build a virtual city built on the backs of fan and merch tokens where people can only enter and engage within this virtual city, but also the IRL real-life events, concerts, activations, if they are members of this Dropless community. And what we're doing differently, um, it's called Dropless because we're going to have drops, but like I've been involved in drop culture for many, many years now, right? Whether it's sneakers, baseball cards, merch, right? Leftover tour merch at the end of a at the end of a rush concert. Those tour shirts go online and they might sell out within minutes, right? So I've been involved in drop culture. And what I love about Dropless is that every NFT is going to be tied to a item or an experience. And so the NFT, if if Rush wanted to do a box set and there's 500 of them, they could sell the NFT in Dropolis that represents the box set. The box set lives in my warehouse. The token, the NFT, lives on the blockchain and in your wallet. Right, and then you choose when to redeem your NFC for me to ship you your box set, which will allow you to now collect vinyl or t shirts or stream printed posters or whatever else any of our future partners come up with. It will allow them to collect it virtually before they did it physically, if, if they don't want to hold it or receive it because they're a flipper or a seller, we can't stop them, right? We can't stop them. So let them sell the token. Don't ruin the integrity of the box set with eight shipments and lost packages and upcharges on extra shipping and cardboard boxes damaging the environment that's only one reason that it will be great right another another reason is that i'm a huge bulls fan from chicago i like to tell everybody that i bought the limited edition jordan jersey that there was only like a thousand of i don't know the number i was a kid but it felt limited right it was a big deal it was the first black one and i loved it and i don't have it anymore I can't tell anybody that I had it. I tell them, but I have no proof, right? My uncle tells me, he's in his 70s now, that he played on, you know, the Purdue football team. He tells everybody. It's important to him. Part of his story. I can't find that in the internet. Internet wasn't even those records in the 1950s, right? And so the future is, in my opinion, 
these totings and Dropolis is going to be a part of the fabric of people like buying and selling merch bundles, concert tickets, vinyl records, uh, meet and greets, VIP that come with tokens to help you buy and sell those items or experiences, but also, frankly, flex your social capital that you were at the first Billie Eilish concert or you you bought the the 50-year, 60-year rush catalog. I mean, only a 1,000 people will say that, or 5,000, but, like, it'll be social proof. I will say that my first exposure to the concept of NFT, despite the fact that I didn't even know what non-fungible, whatever it is, um, meant, it struck me as so bizarre that someone would want the bragging rights or the sense of exclusivity to own something that was digital. We all come from such a physical world, you know, that the idea of having something to frame on your wall just feels more tangible and more tactile. Wrapping my head around having something that is in the ether and it remains digital, um, it's obviously it's, it's exhilarating to think that people will want to do that and do want to do that, but Something in my sense of ethics says if they're going to do that, they should also get some kind of compensation for that commitment in the form of a physical piece of art. You got to hold it and look at it, you know. Exactly. And that's important to me, too. And that will forever be important. I mean, we're, oh, I mean, some, some science fiction movies say that we won't have physical bodies one day, right? So maybe, maybe that'll happen. But uh, I, I expect that humans will have physical bodies. and We'll be owning homes and doing the restaurants and concerts, right? Like, forever, right? And so as long as that's a thing, like, I believe in this world, like, the definition of metaverse is so misconstrued right now. Everybody has a, a damn different definition. I'm not saying I'm right, but I'm likely to say that I'm right on this one. I believe that the metaverse is the blend of our physical and digital existence because we all live on and off the internet. We're all talking on the internet right now. And the probably be NFC one day to commemorate that we all met each other and all hung out on this Wednesday, October 5th. That's what I believe the metaverse is, is like it's like the next iteration of blending our physical and digital lives. And Dropolis is going to be that that community for for creators, brands, and fans to engage with one another in the metaverse around tokens that are tied to physical experiences and, and, and collectibles. I think some of it is happening so often in our lives and has happened in the last 10 or 15, 20 years that we don't even realize it. As I'm sitting here in my office, this is one stack of business cards, okay? I think this stack of business cards has this rubber band on it for probably five years is maybe the last time I touched this. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then I even have one of these. Oh, no. Nice. I keep this as a talking point. This is a Rolodex because there's still people that come in my office, especially like younger, and they're like, what in the hell is that? Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a great talking piece. But my point is I don't use these things anymore. We used to use these things. Every damn day, you'd always take them to meetings, always take them to wherever and hand these things out, right? And we don't even think about, or we can't really pinpoint back in our heads when it went from that to this necessarily, but it happened, you know? And I think that's the 
kind of the, the whole thing with NFTs and everything else is it's just kind of organically morphed into life. There's elements of all of those things. It's, it's not here yet, but it's starting without 90% of the world understanding. They, people, whether it's at Dropless or Ticketmaster or Starbucks, are going to start owning NFTs without even knowing that they own an NFT. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's that's a you just hit the nail on the head. It's all my my point in this, saying this was we went from this to this and didn't even really realize it until you stop and think about it. Well, this has been really fascinating, Stevie. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? And uh, we're we're definitely going to follow back up with you. I know Hugh will, will want to for sure and, and bug you a little Very bit. Very inspirational, man. I learned the hard way. I wanted to wanted to get involved in crypto and blockchain and NFTs. Many years ago, and I didn't have any mentors or teachers. I just had to Google, and I put in a lot of time. But if I can expedite it for other people, right, and help them help them get their first NFT, or even if they don't want to, just answer their questions, and I'll even talk to the haters. You know, like I'm even a hater. So I'm a hater some days. You know, like you know, like there's nothing is perfect, but um, I believe that. I believe that the technology is here. I believe that it's going to come even faster. I believe it's going to get even wilder. And I see a lot of benefits to happiness and human engagement because we're already buying T-shirts and vinyl and doing that concerts. We may as well add the technological ownership of that moment and engage more with our favorite brands and musicians and artists and 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 even like restaurants, I joke around that if Dunkin' Donuts, I'm, I'm, I prefer Dunkin' over Starbucks. Like if Dunkin' ever has a, a NFT where I can get a free hot chocolate every day for the rest of my life, like sign me up. Like what is it? Like five thousand dollars? Like let's go. <laughs> yeah, man. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not so bad, right? <laughs> With such insight as yourself, you talk about coins, and blockchain, and so on. Do you hold pity or hope for those people that actually have Bitcoin in their in their life? Let's just say this. Uh, not financial advice, NFA. Uh, do your own due diligence, right? That'll start there. I'll end it there as well. I am an Ethereum maxi. I'm not a Bitcoin maxi. However, however, I do find the... If you're talking about Bitcoin, I find the idea of it being very finite, similar to like real estate, right? So like there's only so much real estate in the world. And because of that, real estate has value, right? More and more and more people want real estate, then the value goes up. And there's more and more humans being born every day. So... If you go back to the conversation around capitalism and merchants becoming efficient, as long as entrepreneurs create use for Bitcoin and Ethereum and Polygon and whatever XYZ coin you're saying, and some of them they won't, many of them they will go to zero. Okay, but some of them will continue to have uses that are functional that would give them value. So you're asking me about Bitcoin. 
I do not understand Bitcoin as well as many people. I'm not a student of Bitcoin from a functionality standpoint. It's very different than Ethereum and Polygon and Solana and some of the ones that I understand because those are smart contracts that are really well built for like my world of commerce. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a million stories though of things as big as Bitcoin did not work out as well. So, and so there, there's risk everywhere. And I think that it's very clear that blockchain is the future of the internet. So some coins will maintain a fiat value, right? It, it just has to, right? I mean, I don't know which ones. I'm not going to tell you which ones to buy, but like, I do believe in blockchain as a whole term. And, you know, the risk is, is that a new style of blockchain encryption emerges and destroys the rest. You know, like one ring to rule, rule them all. Like, I, that's why I say I'm an Ethereum Massey, because I believe all roads point to Ethereum. Other people believe all roads point to Solana for the same purpose, right? Like, everyone has different opinions. But you don't have full-blown pity for people who still have Bitcoin yet. <laughs> oh, no, because I would, I, would, I would be right next to them. My amazing lunch just out here. I don't think we got sushi. Did we get sushi? We got some Indian food today, guys. We got some Indian food. I'm a little disappointed in you, Stevie. I mean, you know, you're... Pushing we figured it'd be sushi. sushi. I have like five to six major food groups. It's uh, it's Italian, sushi, Indian, Mexican, oh, Thai food, oh, yeah. burgers, right, and caffeine, and cheese. It. So that's like, that's my entire diet. So I will not be living that much in Norway. <laughs> 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 We're glad we caught you. Well, you're you eating know. good though, man. So there you go. <laughs> I'm living life. Thank you so much for your very inspiring story, Stevie. And, and okay. wow, what, what, thank you. Thank you for just, you know, going over everything like this. Really, really cool stuff. Congrats. of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills, too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically, so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial.